At Ashurst, we acknowledge First Nations peoples as the traditional custodians of the land on which we work in Australia and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to Ashurst Business Agenda. My name is Dr Erin Cornane and I'm Head of Cognitive Endurance at Ashurst. This is the first episode of our mini-series about trends in workplace health and safety. In this episode, we tackle cognitive endurance, which has recently emerged as a priority for all employers across all industries. We discuss the enormous performance and productivity pressures for boards and executives at the individual and organisational level. And most importantly, what can be done to maximise cognitive endurance. Our guests for today's episode is Jamie Ong, our Global Head of Consulting at Ashurst, and James Hewitt, who is a former professional cyclist and now high performance and endurance scientist, whose clients have included top ranked sports teams and Fortune 500 companies. Here's our discussion. Some listeners might be thinking to themselves, you know, why is a law firm helping senior executives build cognitive endurance and high performance at work? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, perhaps if you know, we can start a bit, of a, a bit of a discussion actually about you know, why Ashurst established its risk advisory business in the first place. And I think you know, very simply, you know, we wanted to be the easiest and most logical first call that clients could make when they're faced with a crisis or some high impact event where you know, access to um, expertise was paramount. Um, and we found that the combination, you know, after speaking with clients, the combination of legal and risk advice you know, packaged up together in an integrated way, um, there was a, a gap in the market there, particularly around certain types of really important, significant events uh, in, involving our clients. Um, so that led to the legal-led consulting approach um, that it has framed the entire business and actually has led you know, quite substantially to its success. If we turn to cognitive performance um, and how this all fits together, so cognitive performance, particularly enduring performance in the context of you know, quite an increasingly complex business environment, um, you know, we believe that is ab absolutely crucial to the success of our clients. Um, and if we think about what we've all been through the past couple of years, um, wildfires, bushfires, pandemics, floods, climate chaos, uh, war, both cyber and fighting, you know, it's clear that we need executives operating at their best in order to navigate you know, these high impact events effectively. Our job is to really support clients in navigating that complexity, as I said, informed by law, regulation and risk management perspectives. So within that framing, we saw it only natural to be looking at extending the capability to offer clients a, a service that would ensure executives are op operating at optimal performance levels, you know, the best of their, their ability in order to effectively deal with these you know, really high impact events you know, for their success. So there are clearly also linkages to you know, where we see modern governance, director's duties, work health and safety, and ultimately the future of work going as well. And so you know, as a firm that you know, offers integrated legal and risk capability and that operates globally, uh, I think we felt we had a really interesting perspective to bring and that has helped to shape the design of the program. And also it really enabled us to access some of the, the best minds in the performance space, uh, James included, of course. Erin, um, you've probably got some thoughts on this as well. You know, do you want to give your perspectives on why clients should choose Ashurst for this program? 
Yeah, thank you, Jamie. When we look at, you know, Australia's work health and safety legislation and it imposes duties on officers and executives, uh, to your point, Jamie, to, to demonstrate due diligence that they're proactively managing, you know, not only physical risk, but now psychological safety at work. And we know that traditionally the focus has been on physical safety. But in the last few years, you know, that focus has, has shifted considerably to the need for officers and executives being able to equally demonstrate that psychological due diligence. And so we know that it's critical for boards and for senior executives to understand that psychological due diligence is a moving target. And it's one that can be far more complex than physical safety and physical due diligence. So for example, if we look at the risk, the psychological risk profile of any organization, it can actually change multiple times a year. Unlike physical safety can, a, a trip hazard can be a trip hazard and it can exist for 12 months. But when we look at psychological um, safety and we look at how that can change, you know, an organisation may be about to embark on a major project that has really um, is high risk, there's high job demands, there's sustained cognitive endurance um, and effort and pressure. That can bring psychological risk. We could also then maybe um, be having major organisational change and transformation happening in another part of the organisation. That can bring in psychological risk. It is a constantly moving target. And I think what's important for, for boards and for senior executives to also understand is that psychological risk can vary significantly between business units. So if we looked at the airline industry, for example, the psychological risks that airline pilots face versus the risks that the accounting team faces in the same organisation is really different. They have different work pressures and different cognitive endurance demands as well. But we know that there are still too few, you know, officers and, and directors, um, executives that when we look at the legal-led consulting piece of it, is that helping them to actually better ask the questions, what are the reasonably foreseeable psychological risks in my industry and organisation? How does my organisation mitigate the impact on individuals on those work demands, those cognitive endurance demands? And what can I do to ensure that my organisation's, you know, risk management framework is a appropriately accounts for that. And so through the Ashurst Global Cognitive Endurance Program, you know, we provide boards and senior executives with a proportionate, sustainable and defensible approach to demonstrating, you know, psychological due diligence. And we do it at the individual level and we also do it at the organisational level. I think I love what you said there about complexity and how the profile changes day by day. Um, some of the examples you know you gave there, like um, planning for, for example, for instance, an M and A transaction. You know that may have been something that's in the works for some time, but equally, you know, at any point in time, you might have you know some unexpected event hit the organisation that also has to be addressed. So um, yeah, that that certainly resonates very strongly. 
um, and would be reflective, I guess, of the interactions that we're having with our clients day to day uh, in relation to those sorts of events, whether planned or, or otherwise. James, from your perspective, why do you think a law firm is a good fit for working with clients to understand you know, how to build and nurture the psychological health of themselves and workers? Hmm. Well, thanks. I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, my background is working with uh, a lot of different organisations, mainly very cognitively demanding organisations. So management consultants, law firms, people in the finance sector, uh, people also in some other domains like Formula One, for example, and Formula One teams. And um, so I think that law firms are really well placed to share these kind of insights into this kind of content for, for a couple of different reasons. I think one, obviously, it's about the client demands, which you've articulated, I think, very well. Um, you know, the clients that you're working with, particularly in a risk advisory context, are likely to be experiencing significant challenges, which actually could compromise their cognitive performance just when they need to perform at their cognitive best. Um, and so, you know, for example, we know that when we get stressed, sometimes we're vulnerable to what's sometimes characterized as an amygdala hijack. Uh, you know, the part of the brain that uh, is responsible for the kind of stress and fear and emotion processing can sometimes um, overtake that rational part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And, you know, if you look at other domains, you mentioned aviation already, um, there's a whole training process to make sure that when people are under pressure, when something goes wrong, they're able to maintain that rational, you know, uh, uh, Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman calls it the, the system one, the uh, system two, sorry, the slow thinking logical part of, part of their brain. But actually, if we think about um, uh, outside of these, what would typically be characterized as high risk settings you know, for knowledge workers, for a, a CEO or other C-suite executive, for example, and there isn't really a training program uh, to help you to deal with that kind of pressure and make sure that you can think rationally and carefully when you're facing all kinds of risks and threats. So I think there's definitely a niche and actually you know, being a legal firm that's dealing with people perhaps in the, in the middle of these kind of challenges, I think really makes legal firms like Asher's very well placed to, to serve this kind of content and insights and training. But secondly, I think that um, ideally good law is about translating deep complexity uh, and making it simple uh, and understandable and actionable for the client. Uh, and unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, uh, but ideally I think it does. And this domain of cognitive performance, cognitive endurance is complex. We're gathering scientific insights from all kinds of different scientific domains and trying to distill that down into something that will be really practical and useful. So I think the skill set at Ashurst of people who are very good at distilling that kind of complexity, making it actionable, um, again, makes it very well placed. So um, you know, when you first think about it, it might seem like a, a quite an unusual idea, but actually as you break it down and certainly as I've got to know this program a little bit better, I actually think that there's a really good match there. Outside of aviation, you know, where um, have you seen other good examples of the need to you know, translate the complex into the, the simple in order to you know, help people to manage these you know, really significant cognitive loads in really demanding environments? Well, I think um, I, I worked with, um, with a management consulting firm uh, that was obviously um, you know, a, a very high pressure situation, um, a lot of growth. Um, a lot of clients globally, a lot of, uh, if not travel during the pandemic, you know, Zoom calls at all kinds of times of the, the day and night, which I imagine many people can relate to. And it's interesting because obviously I was dealing with um, uh, very competent, capable people, um, you know, very well educated. And actually a lot of the time people who knew what they needed to do, but, um, but they weren't necessarily putting it into practice. 
And so, you know, one of the challenges that I've seen um, uh, in, in many high-performing organizations is that, um, is what I call the attention paradox. It's the people who need to pay attention the most are often the most at risk of distraction. And that often means that the things that they know they need to pay attention to and direct their energy towards often end up falling by the wayside because they get caught uh, in this cycle of continuous kind of doing, which obviously is necessary, but there's rarely an opportunity to take a step back and, and really think about uh, where their effort is going to be best expended for impact today, but also sustainable impact. So one of the things that was very effective was to create a program to create a, an, an opportunity for people to actually take a step back, really think about how they were working, how they were thinking at a very fundamental level, and start to put into practice some of the things that they know they, they should do. So um, around how, uh, looking at how they could sleep more adequately, for example, how they might be able to actually integrate exercise into their day uh, in a way that was sustainable. So it didn't just become you know, four brilliant weeks at the beginning of the year when they got a new gym membership and then nothing else. Um, we also looked at things like nutrition and how could you start to eat healthily, a little bit healthier, both for your fitness and your well-being, but also for your cognitive performance too. And also think about how you could do that when you're traveling. Obviously, uh, that hasn't happened much over the last couple of years, but it's really starting to pick up again now. Um, and actually, we saw some really interesting results. And you know, one of the reasons being that uh, we also included uh, some uh, wearable device measurement in that program, as I know uh, we're going to talk about, I think, uh, today as well, um, to provide uh, an objective feedback loop. Uh, to complement the um, people's perception of how uh, much better they felt as well. And we saw some great results, you know, people reporting um, uh, fewer experiences of unhelpful levels of stress, uh, but also decreased physiological stress, as indicated by um, uh, a measure called heart rate variability, which uh, I'd be happy to, to dig into if that's of interest. Um, and, and people reporting as well that they, they felt um, that they were able to perform better. Um, I also did a, a similar project uh, with another similar, uh, similar firm, or group of firms actually, um, where I measured cognitive performance objectively. I used a, um, uh, an assessment that was originally designed uh, for deployment in, um, uh, in a military context with tactical operators in forward operating positions. So I used a, a smartphone to measure their cognitive performance. And, um, and we saw some uh, objective improvements in cognitive performance associated with, in particular, people who were starting to sleep adequately. Uh, and, and by that, I mean at least seven hours per night. And that might come as a shock to some people. Um, but uh, that seems to be the threshold. Uh, when we don't hit that seven hours, we get all kinds of bad things happen uh, cognitively, physically, uh, with our mood, as I'm sure uh, many of us have experienced. Um, so, so I guess, you know, in answer to your question, uh, I've seen this work well, where people actually make a commitment to take a step back uh, from their day-to-day -day life. Think about applying some of the things that, you know, that their grandma probably told them to do. Eat well, you know, exercise regularly and get a good night's sleep. Um, but then actually use some objective measures to, to actually determine whether this is working. And I think that's often key because, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, when we're in a very challenging situation where there's a lot of threats and risks and we're starting to get distracted and we're not paying attention to the right things, um, we can sometimes fall into the trap of convincing ourselves that all this good advice applies to someone else and somehow we're immune. Uh, but unfortunately, I think as we see in the workplace with massively increasing rates of burnout, uh, depression, um, you know, people having to step away from jobs which they used to find really meaningful uh, uh, because they just uh, can't, they can't cope anymore because uh, they just can't sustain it. Unfortunately, I think too often uh, we're not applying these principles. We're not measuring what works uh, and uh, we're paying the price, but it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, I've certainly seen in the data and in people's experience that, um, that it's possible to, to perform at your best more sustainably uh, to achieve that cognitive endurance that you're talking about.
That's so true, James, what you're saying. And particularly this point about how actually many of the things we can do are quite simple, yet for some reason we don't do them well. And I guess in that in that context, you know, Erin, how are we going to be helping boards and senior executives to you know, really understand um, and demonstrate, you know, this proportionate, sustainable, and defensible approach to the cognitive health of the of the executives? Yeah, thank you, Jamie. And it's why in our program it is grounded in scientific evidence, but with practical application. We knew that we need to put a convincing argument forward to boards and to senior executives to convince them on why it is absolutely critical to manage not only their own cognitive endurance and peak performance, but how they do that at an organisational level for their workforce. And to go back to, to the point earlier around being able to provide a you know, a defensible, um, proportionate and sustainable response to, to psychological due diligence. And so for us, grounding it in scientific evidence, putting forward that burning platform and creating and giving them uh, practical solutions and recommendations to act is absolutely core to, to our program and being able to convince them to, to want to go on that journey and to do that. I think that's a great point, Erin. And, you know, I think I've, I've seen several motivations for people joining programs like this. And, um, and for some people, you know, it really is that burning platform. They know they're close to the edge. They've got to change something. But I think even if people aren't, don't feel that they're really close to the edge, I think most of us would really like, or most of us really like the idea that we'd be able to maintain our current level of performance, but perhaps increase the margin that we have available to us. And you know, one of the characteristics that I've seen consistently in very high performers and senior executives is they always get the job done, but it's just a question of how much is that going to cost them personally uh, and in terms of effort. And um, you know, that, uh, that proposal or you know, that, that project or that deal uh, is going to get landed, is going to get sent, um, but how hard is it going to be? How much suffering is going to be required uh, to actually get there? And I think there's some principles in this program that could help anybody to increase that margin, because instead of um, having to deliver in it taking 95 or 98 or even 99% of your capacity, suddenly it takes 85. And you know, in that 15% margin, maybe that's available to respond to the unexpected. You know, when uh, something flies across your desk that uh, you didn't anticipate, but you need to respond to really quickly. It means that you can respond to that and you can absorb it without it tipping you over into that red zone, you know, that 105% that really starts to take a significant toll on our, on our well-being and our performance. But also it might be that you spend that 15% somewhere else. You know, maybe it's about relationships. It's uh, people in your family or in your friendship group that uh, you want to spend a bit more time in. It means that at the end of the day, when someone wants to have a conversation with you, you feel you've got that capacity to engage in it because you've not been pushing right to the limit throughout the entire workday. So I think I'm always careful to, to kind of characterize um, uh, you know, the, or recognize the difference uh, in people's motivations for joining this program, because uh, generally I find that people are doing a great job, um, but it's uh, not always clear what's going on behind the scenes and that some people, it's actually about continuing to do that great job, but, but just increasing that margin, uh, creating a bit more bandwidth for, for other things and the unexpected, wherever that might be. Now seems like a good time to dig a little deeper into the Ashurst Global Cognitive Endurance Program. Erin, would you like to kick us off? Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Um, we are incredibly 
uh, excited and, and passionate about delivering this program to our clients. We, as we discussed at the, at the start, we know that every executive is, is facing a multitude of, of strategic challenges. And we discussed some of those, including global labour shortages. How do they attract and retain top talent? We've talked about cyber. These challenges, though, are not an of-the-moment issue. We know that they will persist over the next three to five years, and it will bring enormous cognitive endurance pressures for senior executives and at the individual and organisational level, as I said. You know, for executives, you know, traditional business school doesn't teach you how to perform, how to um, perform at an endurance level, at a peak performance level. Traditional business school teaches us the principles of, of our discipline, our domain, how to be a good leader. But the world at the moment is becoming far more complex and far more challenging. And every executive is in that always on um, mindset and has to perform. So knowing that, we know as well that, that few boards and, and CEOs, they rarely stop to ask themselves three fundamental questions, which is, is my C-suite training for peak cognitive endurance? Are the next top 10% of my executives training for and maintaining cognitive endurance? And finally, what can I do as, as the CEO to maximise the cognitive endurance of my top executives and also redefine their readiness for perennial change? And so to find the, the answer to those questions, as part of the, our program, we've partnered with the world's best universities, proudly five of the top 10 universities across the United States. We've got three of the top 10 universities across the UK as well as Europe. But we've also incorporated elite premiership coaches, athletes, as well as our former Australian Chief of Army, one of our most uh, decorated fighter jet pilots, and of course, James Hewitt here, who's our human performance and, and scientist expert. But we wanted to work with these global program partners and we've fused together really excitingly that has not been done anywhere in the world, fusing together the fields of leadership, of organisational strategy, work, health and safety, neuroscience, physiology, but also technology to really help boards and senior executives understand how to build and maintain peak cognitive endurance and, and performance uh, at work. And as part of our program and working with such a phenomenal group of, of nearly 30 global experts is that we wanted our clients to hear directly from them. We want our clients to directly engage with them just as we are uh, with James today and to be able to put forward a global point of view. Um, and so we take our clients through this through this program, um, and I'm actually going to throw over to to James to actually talk you through firsthand what his role in the Ashurst uh, Cognitive Endurance Program is. Thanks, Erin. Um, well, it's a real privilege to be part of this program. There's such a great group of experts on this program, and uh, you know, as we've been planning out, I feel like I've learned at least as much, if not more, uh, as I've been able to contribute. Um, but, um, but my specific contribution uh, really focuses on two very tactical areas. And so one of those is looking at the role of 
exercise and physical activity on cognitive performance. And the second one um, focuses on nutrition and cognitive performance. And, um, and we often think about exercise and nutrition in terms of the long-term benefits. So for example, um, uh, it's very clear that if you remain physically active, um, you uh, maintain your physical fitness that's associated with uh, long-term brain health you're less likely to experience the cognitive decline um, uh, that is associated with uh, old age, or certainly you'll experience less of it. Um, similarly with nutrition, you know, uh, uh, good nutrition, uh, adequate quality nutrition is also associated with better brain health as we age. But particularly uh, in the context of exercise and cognitive performance, there's also some acute benefits. So that means we can experience a really short-term cognitive performance boost if we use exercise in the right place at the right time uh, and particularly at the right intensity and so one of the things I'm going to dig into in the program um, is how you can use exercise as a cognitive performance enhancing tactic so thinking about for example the timing of exercise to improve your long-term memory so think about when you needed to exercise if you were trying to remember um, a speech or a presentation that you needed to give but also how you can use exercise to make it more likely that you're going to be to be able to recall all that information uh, more effectively, more easily on the day. And actually, the intensity and the timing of the exercise plays a significant role in that. And some really interesting research uh, that we can operationalize to help you to put that into practice. Uh, and nutrition wise, we do look at the role of nutrition and long term brain health uh, because that's actually the primary effect. But we'll also look at some, some acute effects and some of the things that you can do to boost your performance uh, in the short term. Uh, for example, you, you can think about how you can use one of the most effective nutritional cognitive performance enhancers more effectively, caffeine. I'm sure a lot of people use caffeine. Most people don't realize that they're often overusing it uh, to get the performance enhancing benefits that they're looking for. Uh, and that can interrupt their sleep, for example. And uh, I know that's uh, going to be another domain that, that another expert is going, to be, uh, is going to be speaking about. But I'll be really drilling into that, looking at um, cognitive performance and exercise, cognitive performance and nutrition. Uh, but I'll also be playing a role in um, helping the participants understand their wearable data. So there's a wearable component uh, to this program. We're going to be using a device um, to measure um, uh, things like sleep, uh, their people's exercise, but also some of these physiological metrics. Um, and I mentioned heart rate variability uh, during the podcast. Um, you can think of heart rate variability as a kind of global indicator uh, of your readiness to perform uh, physically and even cognitively. And um, I don't know how deeply you want me to go into this now, but you know, in short, you can think about heart rate variability um, as an indication that your nervous system is ready to adapt. High heart rate variability indicates that what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, that's um, your rest and digest nervous system, is able to apply the brake on that sympathetic fight or flight nervous system in just the right place at just the right time uh, with just the right amount of pressure on that metaphorical brake pedal. And so we'll be using that metric to see how when you start to put some of these ideas into practice, is it having a positive effect on improving your ability to adapt and respond both physically and cognitively? And so the wearable device provides a really helpful tool to do that. But there's also a journal feature that we'll be using. Um, so as you start to introduce these behaviors, uh, you'll actually get a measure of whether that's trending towards the positive or maybe the negative or the neutral, but also how other habits uh, during your everyday life are having an effect uh, on your physiology. So for example, um, if you're using too much caffeine more than you need to, to enhance your cognitive performance, is that having a negative effect on your sleep and recovery? Or perhaps maybe changing meal timing might have a positive effect. So you can think about the program as kind of a personal experiment. And I'm also going to be doing some coaching in the program. Uh, and I'll kind of be your, your guide on that personal experiment as you start to 
take some of these ideas from all of these experts, put them into practice, and then uh, use this wearable feedback loop to start to figure out what's really working for you. Thanks, James. That's absolutely brilliant. And it really does provide um, our listeners with great examples of the, the practical application of evidence-based science into the program as well. And as James said, a really important part of our program too is that we personalise it to our clients. And so one, one client, one executive's physiology um, versus the executive sitting next to him could be entirely different. And so part of our program too is looking at how do you build and maintain peak performance through a completely different lens. So rather than rolling out the standard, you know, workplace and, and leadership high performance programs, part of our program is really looking at an individual level. What is the physiology makeup, but what is the what is that cognitive health makeup of that particular individual? Why does that executive make the decisions that they make? Why is it that they have better working memory and emotion regulation than the executive sitting next to them? And so by understanding and helping our, our clients, our executives see how does their brain individually work at its best, that's where we can improve their individual performance while also still equally balancing what does that mean at an organisational level. But it's a really great example that James provided of it's a really tailored approach to the individual, which is a core part of, of our program. We are unbelievably excited to, to be working with clients in, in this space and, um, and bringing a completely new approach and, and take to it. So, James, um, it's an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the program sharing a little bit um, about your skills and experience with us and, and point of view. Thank you. It's a real privilege. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode in our mini-series about workplace health and safety trends. As you just heard, workplace health and safety has become increasingly complex. There are multiple legal issues and risks to manage which can have a direct impact on leaders, their people and their organisation's productivity. If you would like to discuss how such legal and risk issues impact your organisation, please feel free to get in touch with me, Dr. Erin Quinane. My contact details will be in the show notes of this podcast. This episode is the latest in Ashurst's Business Agenda podcast. To find out more about our podcasts, head over to www.ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. To ensure you don't miss any future episodes, Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, check out our other episodes and feel free to leave a rating or review. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Business Agenda, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Legal Outlook explains the emerging legal trends and requirements of our fast-changing world. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges.
You can listen and subscribe to Legal Outlook and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.